Four weeks into the war on Gaza, here's what we're focusing on at The Listening Post. Bloodlust on the airwaves, dismissing calls for a ceasefire. The media in Israel have hit some new lows. The ethnic cleansing on the West Bank intensifies. Israelis are sharing the evidence of that online and under the microscope into the database. The Palestinians living in a surveillance laboratory built by Israel. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert. Any country that suffers an attack such as the one Israel endured on October 7th is going to be traumatized. There will be calls for revenge. There can be and have been demands for the destruction of the enemy. At times such as these, it is a tenet of journalism to produce objective, contextualized news coverage, to cover all of the angles, to resist the editorial red lines that will inevitably descend from above. Lives depend on it. That is not what is happening in Israel. Most of the media there have fallen into line, not necessarily with the extremist government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but with the military campaign to destroy Hamas. They are covering the bombardment of the Gaza Strip through the horrific prism of October 7th, driven by a combination of fear and hatred that justifies, in the eyes of most of the Israeli media, the war crimes being inflicted upon the Palestinian people. And history will not treat their journalism kindly. The primary function of media is holding the powerful to account and giving a voice to the voiceless. If media were objective or sensible, the headline that will be running day in and day out is that hundreds of children are being killed every day and that that has to come to an immediate end. And to the extent to which killing on that scale has been normalized and accepted, that in itself is complicity. Nearly a month after Hamas's gruesome attack on October 7th, Israelis are still in shock. Their trauma lives on in the images of death from that day. In the numbers, more than 1,400 Israelis killed, 200 plus taken hostage. And in the testimonies of those who survived that slaughter but lost loved ones to it. Up against all that, things such as context fall by the wayside. The 75 years of dispossession that turned Palestinians into refugees on their own land. The 56 years of illegal occupation. The open-air prison that is Gaza, apartheid. Traumatized by effect, most Israelis are in no mood to consider cause. Neither are the bulk of the voices coming at them on their domestic airwaves. Israelis have long lived with the fear that one day the refugees would come back and demand their homes. And then to have this attack on October 7th was the realization of it on a scale nobody imagined. And not just the scale, but the, the nature of it. They were uh, horrific. The media has amplified that to a great degree, and along with that amplification has come all the use of historical analogies that would justify the uh, collective punishment and the mass uh, murder of uh, thousands of innocent uh, Palestinians. We keep on hearing uh, devastating stories. 
לא הבחינו בין גבר לאישה ולא בין אבא לילדה, רצחו את כולם אחד אחרי השנייה. Complicating Israel's war effort are the hostages held in Gaza. The bombs are falling around them too, and the ground invasion puts them in further danger. On Monday, Hamas released a video of three of them imploring Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to get them out. But rather than air that video or wait for military censors to tell them not to, the Israeli media took the collective decision to self-censor. It was a decision made by the uh, channels in Israel, not by the government, not to broadcast that. Same as you would not broadcast the ISIS videos, right? You shouldn't do that. It's terrorizing the societies. The same decision here, because terrorists, this is what they do. They abduct people from their beds, they put a gun into their head, and they make them say things on a TV. In Israel, the hostage story is playing out as a political blame game. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has campaigned calling himself Mr. Security, has seen his poll numbers crater. Ever since October 7th, Israeli opposition figures, editorial writers, and interviewees have been calling Netanyahu unfit for the job. In this radio interview, his former defense minister was scathing. <laughs> For the first three weeks following the Hamas attack, the Prime Minister limited his public appearances to speeches and stage-managed photo ops. When Netanyahu finally agreed to a press conference, he made sure he was not alone. He brought his Minister of Defense and a member of the War Cabinet with him, Human Shields. It was Netanyahu's first presser in more than two years. He told journalists he would take 12 questions, but fled the scene after seven. This situation in which Netanyahu finds himself backed in a corner is an incredibly dangerous setting. This is a leader who is addicted to political survival through demagoguery by shifting people's passions into external threats and other things. Netanyahu has been using genocidal rhetoric, quoting Bible verses about genocide in order to describe this confrontation, invoking that kind of imagery and magnitude really sets us up for precisely the kind of atrocities that we're currently watching. When examining the journalism on Israeli news outlets, it is difficult to distinguish the extent to which they are reflecting public opinion or stoking it. Safe to say they have cemented the idea of the need for retribution or something far worse. Any outsider watching that output might conclude that some of the most dangerous Israelis on social media have somehow invaded news studios, armed with euphemisms for genocide. 
be Channel 12 or Channel 13 news, which of the two big channels is also Channel 11, which is the public broadcasting channel, and then Channel 14, which is the sort of Netanyahu-friendly, loosely Fox News reminiscent um, channel. If you turn them on, you'll still hear no shortage of people saying things like, you have to flatten the Gaza Strip, we have to do something that takes the Gaza back you know, several years, that kind of rhetoric. For fairness sake, Israeli media has been varied. There has been plenty of anti-Palestinian incitement, um, but there's also been some pushback about some of the unverified claims that the Israeli government had made about what happened on October 7th and beyond. But many parts of Israeli media are actually fully accepting the Israeli government's narrative and beating that drumbeat of war on and on, they are effectively engaging in propaganda for genocide. There is indeed uh, a, a minority in Israel that is speaking out against what uh, Israel is doing in Gaza, the absolutely uh, disproportionate attack on uh, civilians. But as soon as those voices uh, are raised, they are uh, attacked uh, vehemently. One example is a prominent Israeli journalist named Israel Fry, who uh, recited a prayer for the, the dead in Gaza and was uh, uh, attacked by a mob at his home. So that is the uh, degree of rage uh, and anger among ordinary Israelis right now, and, and that makes it nearly impossible to voice any kind of uh, expression of sympathy for all of the innocents who are being killed uh, hour by hour right now. The civilian death toll in Gaza, more than 9,000, is not as newsworthy in Israel as it should be. When those numbers aren't being contested by the government, they're being downplayed in the coverage or somehow justified. And the Gaza must be crushed narrative is being used against Palestinians who live within Israel's borders. There are more than two million of them, roughly 20% of the population, and they find themselves at risk. We wanted to speak with one of them, a journalist. This was his reply. You can mention in your piece that I refused an interview because it is not safe for Palestinian public figures at all in lawless Israel right now, without mentioning my name, of course. I've spoken to people who are Palestinian citizens of Israel who say they're afraid to speak Arabic in public out of fear of the kind of violence that they might face. Palestinian citizens of Israel are having their phones checked about the content that is on there. Their social media is being closely monitored. People are arrested for expressing you views that the Israeli government disapproves. It is a very, very scary climate. And Palestinian citizens of Israel have, have, to, have had to be extra cautious about their political statements. Um, have, they haven't gone out to demonstrate against the war. That's something that's very striking. And there are all sorts of stories that are coming out from academia, from public life more generally, about people who are facing consequences for their comments. And these don't have to be um, stridently pro-Palestine -Pal -Pro comments. Sometimes it's just criticisms of the war. It is an atmosphere of intimidation, pumped up by the media discourse. 
No one knows where this story is going or what will be left of Gaza and its people. The Israeli response to the previously unthinkable horrors of October 7th is already being described by many as a form of genocide. That is not a term that journalists should use lightly. But if that is what it comes to, the Israeli media will have helped pave the way. Israel maintains its war on Gaza is aimed at Hamas, not civilians there. However, Palestinians are also being targeted on the West Bank, which isn't even ruled by Hamas. Nearly 150 have been killed there, thousands more injured or displaced from their homes. Minakshi Ravi joins us now with a viewer warning. Richard, some of the videos coming out of the West Bank are really painful to watch because of the degradation and torture they show of Palestinians. We've blurred these images, stills taken from videos filmed in places like Hebron, showing Israeli soldiers blindfolding, stripping and tormenting Palestinian men. This kind of material is across Israeli social media, shared by right-wing accounts. There are other videos, also from Israeli soldiers, showing the abduction and humiliation of Palestinians. Some of these clips have made it onto Israel's mainstream media. <laughs> it's important to remember that the escalation of violence in the West Bank preceded October 7th. 2023 was already the deadliest year for Palestinians there, victims of attacks that were openly encouraged by members of the Netanyahu government. The country's security minister, Itmar Ben-Gavir, himself a settler from the West Bank, has been seen distributing rifles to Israeli civilians to create what he calls, quote, a strong civil militia that will restore governance where needed. Again, Israel says its enemy in this war is Hamas, not Palestinian civilians. The West Bank is overseen by the PA, the Palestinian Authority. Hamas has nothing to do with the place. Yet Palestinians there are being hounded, their homes stolen, and their existence erased. Thanks, Mila. Overseeing Israel's occupation of the West Bank and the expansion of its illegal settlements there is a surveillance apparatus that is as deep and invasive as they come. For anyone trying to understand just how advanced the monitoring system is, the city of Hebron is Exhibit A, labeled by Israeli intelligence as a smart city. Its people are watched by CCTV networks, subjected to biometric mapping. Their identities are plugged into a database every time they pass through a checkpoint. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafa was in Hebron earlier this year, examining how the Israelis have turned the West Bank into a laboratory for their surveillance technology and what it's like to live there, knowing that you're always being watched. Hebron is the West Bank's largest city, and it's being hollowed out from within. The Israeli military enforces a policy of separation here. The city was divided into two sections in 1997, H1, where the Palestinian Authority has nominal control, and H2, which is under full Israeli control. Israel's authority in H2 is designed to protect 800 settlers living here illegally, according to international law, amongst around 40,000 Palestinians. One of those settlers happens to be Itamar Ben-Gavir, who has been convicted of inciting anti-Arab racism and supporting a terrorist group. He is now Israel's Minister of National Security. To safeguard the settlers, 
Hebron's sacred old city is under military lockdown. Some parts of H2 have been designated sterile, that's the official term, areas where Palestinians are forbidden. Over the years, the locals have seen the environment around them transformed, inch by inch, house by house, checkpoint by checkpoint. Hebron is full of what the Israeli military likes to call friction. That lends itself to many new ways to innovate technologies that promise to reduce the so-called friction and make Israel's occupation more humanitarian for Palestinians. This is what the Israeli military claims. The streets are covered in CCTV cameras, in facial recognition cameras that give the Israeli military and the intelligence forces a full 24-7 and encompassing view of Palestinian life in the city. I think the best word for it is carceral. The feeling that prison is not within a bounded space, but it follows you wherever you go, into the city's streets, in your home, into your bedroom, and that there's no escaping it. Across the West Bank, Palestinians are experiencing an explosion of military and settler violence. In one week in February, the Israeli military raided the city of Nablus, killing 11 people. A few days later, Palestinian gunmen shot and killed two settlers in Hawala. Hundreds of settlers then marched into the town, escorted and protected by Israeli soldiers, and indulged in an hours-long rampage. By sunrise, hundreds of vehicles, homes and shops had been torched. Over the last five years, the number of settler attacks against Palestinians has risen by almost 200%. In Hebron, they happen almost every day. The Israeli military likes to call Hebron a smart city. It's a euphemism for the elaborate system of surveillance and facial recognition they are operating here on Palestinians. If we count how many cameras we have here, how many cameras you can see? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten cameras. Wizzatid Karaki lives in H2. He walked me through how the cameras and checkpoints shape his everyday routine. We have 22 Israeli checkpoints as, as the one you see. What you have to know that this checkpoint recognizes me even before I get into the checkpoint. Sometimes the soldier tell me, is that, give me your ID. He knows my name already. They know that I'm crossing the checkpoint 10 times per day, but each time they have to check my body to let me get into my, to my, to my house. Not only that, Palestinians are levels for them, which is red, yellow, and green. If you are Palestinian and you have been arrested by the army, you might be in the, in the, in the red level. For example, if you are known to them and they know you resist the occupation, you might be like, you know, in the yellow. Sometime when I want to cross the checkpoint, the soldier can keep me three hours for no reason. This is the Israeli law. So if they want to kill your day, they can easily do it. They can keep you at the checkpoint for three hours. After that, nothing will happen. They will not be accountable at all. 
It's something you hear across Hebron, an awareness that the all-seeing gaze of the city's network of cameras are designed to protect the settlers, not Palestinians. It's not just the density of cameras in Palestinian neighborhoods that gives it away, it's the direction they face, often inwards towards people's homes, invading their most intimate spaces. Testimonials from former Israeli soldiers who've spoken out about their experiences in Hebron, along with an investigation by Amnesty International, have given us a more complete picture of the various systems of surveillance in use and how invasive they are. Israeli authorities are trying to collate and create a database exclusively consisting of Palestinian faces. So the idea is that when you're arriving at the checkpoint, if that information exists on you, such as who is related to you, have you been here before, are you due to be taken in for detention or questioning, that is flagged on the system and a soldier is able to decide whether you can pass or not. Artificial intelligence has created what feels like a digitally mediated prison in Hebron. The military recently installed this autonomous weapon, a so-called smart shooter. It's powered by AI, which means it can shoot without human intervention. Amnesty has also documented the use of something called anomalies detection sensors and algorithms that flag the presence of individuals or objects that the Israeli military would consider out of the ordinary. In addition, soldiers use a number of overlapping programs that collate information on Palestinians to monitor and govern their movement. The first previously unreported system is Red Wolf, that's the one used at permanent checkpoints, where Palestinians are biometrically registered and assessed against information held on them. Soldiers teach Red Wolf by pairing new faces with IDs and other biographical information. Then there's Blue Wolf, a facial recognition app Israeli forces use in the field on raids or at temporary checkpoints to capture photos of Palestinians. The third system is White Wolf, an app for settlers, allowing them to check if Palestinian workers have the correct permits. It gives the settlers access to confidential government data. Connecting all of this is Wolfpack, a database that aims to build a profile of every Palestinian in the West Bank, including information like a person's name, where they live, their family members, car license plates, and whether they are wanted or not. According to testimonies from veterans, Israeli soldiers are even incentivized to compete with one another over who can collect the most data and photos of Palestinians. It's just one of the ways the occupation here in Hebron is being gamified. This creates an idea that Palestinians are just um, objects out there waiting to be photographed, and that may help your unit to reap some form of reward, but is ultimately leading to dehumanization of an entire racialized group. The Israeli military says AI-driven surveillance will deliver a frictionless occupation, one that is supposedly more benign. However, these experimental technologies have also allowed Israel to covertly deepen its control over Palestinians, entrenching a form of apartheid but doing so invisibly.
We often hear about how advanced Israeli security systems and surveillance technologies are and how they'll deliver a more humane and frictionless occupation. But I think what falls out of that narrative is the really invasive and dehumanizing aspects of surveillance that upend Palestinians life day after day. To feel as if your every movement, what you say on and offline, and what you're maybe even thinking is being documented and monitored by an occupying army makes life quite unbearable under occupation. Whether it's Hebron, elsewhere on the West Bank, Gaza, where thousands of civilians, so many of them children, have been killed, or on the Israeli airwaves, the dehumanization of Palestinians is a theme that runs throughout the coverage of this war. Here at The Listening Post, we will continue to tell that story, to give it the coverage it deserves.